Chapter Twenty Five of the Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter Twenty Five. Jurgis got up wild with rage, but the door was shut and the great castle was dark and impregnable. Then the icy teeth of the blast bit into him, and he turned and went away at a run. When he stopped again it was because he was coming to frequented streets and did not wish to attract attention. In spite of that last humiliation his heart was thumping fast with triumph. He had come out ahead on that deal. He put his hand into his trousers pocket every now and then to make sure that the precious hundred-dollar bill was still there. Yet he was in a plight, a curious and even dreadful plight, when he came to realize it. He had not a single cent but that one bill, and he had to find some shelter that night he had to change it. Jurgis spent half an hour walking and debating the problem. There was no one he could go to for help. He had to manage it all alone. To get it changed in a lodging-house would be to take his life in his hands. He would almost certainly be robbed and perhaps murdered before morning. He might go to some hotel or railroad depot and ask to have it changed, but what would they think, seeing a bum like him with a hundred dollars? He would probably be arrested if he tried it, and what story could he tell? On the morrow Freddy Jones would discover his loss and there would be a hunt for him, and he would lose his money. The only other plan he could think of was to try in a saloon. He might pay them to change it, if it could not be done otherwise. He began peering into places as he walked. He passed several as being too crowded, and then finally, chancing upon one where the bartender was all alone, he gripped his hands in sudden resolution and went in. "'Can you change me a hundred-dollar bill?' he demanded. The bartender was a big husky fellow with the jaw of a prize-fighter and a three-weeks stubble of hair upon it. He stared at Jurgis. "'What's that you say?' he demanded. "'I said, could you change me a hundred-dollar bill?' "'Where'd you get it?' he asked incredulously. "'Never mind,' said Jurgis. "'I've got it, and I want it changed. I'll pay you if you'll do it.' The other stared at him hard. "'Let me see it,' he said. "'Will you change it?' Jurgis demanded gripping it tightly in his pocket. "'How the hell can I know if it's good or not?' retorted the bartender. "'What's your take-me-for, eh?' Then Jurgis slowly and warily approached him. He took out the bill and fumbled it for a moment, while the man stared at him with hostile eyes across the counter. Then finally he handed it over. The other took it and began to examine it. He smoothed it between his fingers and held it up to the light. He turned it over and upside down and edgewise. It was new and rather stiff, and that made him dubious. Jurgis was watching him like a cat all the time. Humph, he said finally, and gazed at the stranger, sizing him up, a ragged, ill-smelling tramp with no overcoat and one arm in a sling and a hundred-dollar bill. "'Want to buy anything?' he demanded. "'Yes,' said Jurgis. "'I'll take a glass of beer.' "'All right,' said the other. "'I'll change it.' And he put the bill in his pocket and poured Jurgis out a glass of beer and set it on the counter. Then he turned to the cash register and punched up five cents and began to pull money out of the drawer. Finally he faced Jurgis counting it out. 
two dimes, a quarter, and fifty cents. There, he said. For a second Jurgis waited, expecting to see him turn again. My ninety-nine dollars, he said. What ninety-nine dollars? demanded the bartender. My change, he cried, the rest of my hundred. Go on, said the bartender, you're nutty. And Jurgis stared at him with wild eyes. For an instant horror reigned at him, black, paralyzing, awful horror, clutching him at the heart. And then came rage, in surging, blinding floods. He screamed aloud and seized the glass and hurled it at the other's head. The man ducked and it missed him by half an inch. He rose again and faced Jurgis, who was vaulting over the bar with his one well arm, and dealt him a smashing blow in the face, hurling him backward upon the floor. Then, as Jurgis scrambled to his feet again and started round the counter after him, he shouted at the top of his voice, "'Help! Help!' Jurgis seized a bottle off the counter as he ran, and as the bartender made a leap he hurled the missile at him with all his force. It just grazed his head and shivered into a thousand pieces against the post of the door. Then Jurgis started back, rushing at the man again in the middle of the room. This time, in his blind frenzy, he came without a bottle.' and that was all the bartender wanted. He met him halfway and floored him with a sledgehammer drive between the eyes. An instant later the screen doors flew open and two men rushed in, just as Jurgis was getting to his feet again, foaming at the mouth with rage and trying to tear his broken arm out of its bandages. "'Look out!' shouted the bartender. "'He's got a knife!' Then, seeing that the two were disposed to join the fray, he made another rush at Jurgis and knocked aside his feeble defense and sent him tumbling again, and the three flung themselves upon him, rolling and kicking about the place. A second later a policeman dashed in, and the bartender yelled once more, "'Look out for his knife!' Jurgis had fought himself half to his knees when the policeman made a leap at him and cracked him across the face with his club. Though the blow staggered him, the wild beast frenzy still blazed in him, and he got to his feet, lunging into the air. Then again the club descended, full upon his head, and he dropped like a log to the floor. The policeman crouched over him, clutching his stick, waiting for him to try to rise again, and meantime the bartender got up and put his hand to his head. "'Christ,' he said, "'I thought I was done for that time. Did he cut me?' "'Don't see anything, Jake,' said the policeman. "'What's the matter with him?' "'Just crazy drunk,' said the other. "'A lame duck, too, but he most got me under the bar. You said better call the wagon, Billy.' "'No,' said the officer. "'He's got no more fight in him, I guess, and he's only got a block to go.' He twisted his hand in Jurgis' collar and jerked at him. "'Get up here, you,' he commanded. But Jurgis did not move, and the bartender went behind the bar and after stowing the hundred-dollar bill away in a safe hiding-place came and poured a glass of water over Jurgis. Then, as the latter began to moan feebly, the policeman got him to his feet and dragged him out of the place. The station-house was just around the corner, and so in a few minutes Jurgis was in a cell. He spent half the night lying unconscious, and the balance moaning in torment with a blinding headache and a racking thirst. Now and then he cried aloud for a drink of water, but there was no one to hear him. There were others in that same station-house with split heads and a fever. There were hundreds of them in the great city, and tens of thousands of them in the great land, and there was no one 
to hear any of them. In the morning Jurgis was given a cup of water and a piece of bread, and then hustled into a patrol wagon and driven to the nearest police court. He sat in the pen with a score of others until his turn came. The bartender, who proved to be a well-known bruiser, was called to the stand. He took the oath and told his story. The prisoner had come into his saloon after midnight, fighting drunk, and had ordered a glass of beer and tendered a dollar bill in payment. He had been given ninety-five cents change and had demanded ninety-nine dollars more, and before the plaintiff could even answer had hurled the glass at him and then attacked him with a bottle of bitters and nearly wrecked the place. Then the prisoner was sworn, a forlorn object, haggard and unshorn, with an arm done up in a filthy bandage, a cheek and head cut, and bloody, and one eye purplish-black and entirely closed. "'What have you to say for yourself?' queried the magistrate. "'Your Honor,' said Jurgis, "'I went into his place and asked the man if he could change me a hundred-dollar bill, and he said he would if I bought a drink. I gave him the bill, and then he wouldn't give me the change.' The magistrate was staring at him in perplexity. "'You gave him a hundred-dollar bill?' he exclaimed. "'Yes, Your Honor,' said Jurgis. "'Where did you get it?' "'A man gave it to me, Your Honor.' "'A man? What man? And what for?' "'A young man I met upon the street, Your Honor. I had been begging.' There was a twitter in the courtroom. The officer who was holding Jurgis put up his hand to hide a smile, and the magistrate smiled without trying to hide it. "'It's true, Your Honor,' cried Jurgis passionately. "'You had been drinking as well as begging last night, had you not?' inquired the magistrate. "'No, Your Honor,' protested Jurgis. "'I—' "'You had not had anything to drink?' "'Why, yes, Your Honor, I had—' "'What did you have?' "'I had a bottle of something. I don't know what it was. Something that burned.' There was again a laugh round the courtroom, stopping suddenly as the magistrate looked up and frowned. "'Have you ever been arrested before?' he asked abruptly. The question took Jurgis aback. "'I—' "'I—' he stammered. "'Tell me the truth now,' commanded the other, sternly. "'Yes, Your Honor,' said Jurgis. "'How often?' "'Only once, Your Honor.' "'What for?' "'For knocking down my boss, Your Honor. I was working in the stockyards, and he—' "'I see,' said His Honor. "'I guess that will do. You ought to stop drinking if you can't control yourself. Ten days and costs. Next case?' Jurgis gave vent to a cry of dismay, cut off suddenly by the policeman, who seized him by the collar. He was jerked out of the way, into a room with the convicted prisoners, where he sat and wept like a child in his impotent rage. It seemed monstrous to him that policemen and judges should esteem his word as nothing in comparison with the bartenders. Poor Jurgis could not know that the owner of the saloon paid five dollars each week to the policeman alone for Sunday privileges and general favors, nor that the pugilist bartender was one of the most trusted henchmen of the democratic leader of the district, and had helped only a few months before to hustle out a record-breaking vote as a testimonial to the magistrate who had been made the target of odious kid-gloved reformers. Jurgis was driven out to the bridewell for the second time. In his tumbling around he had hurt his arm again, and so could not work, but had to be attended by the physician. Also his head and his eye had to be tied up, 
and so he was a pretty-looking object when, the second day after his arrival, he went out into the exercise court and encountered Jack Duane. The young fellow was so glad to see Jurgis that he almost hugged him. "'By God, if it isn't the stinker!' he cried. "'And what is it? Have you been through a sausage machine?' "'No,' said Jurgis, "'but I've been in a railroad wreck and a fight.' And then, while some of the other prisoners gathered round, he told his wild story. Most of them were incredulous, but Duane knew that Jurgis could never have made up such a yarn as that. "'Hard luck, old man,' he said when they were alone, "'but maybe it's taught you a lesson.' "'I've learned some things since I saw you last,' said Jurgis mournfully. Then he explained how he had spent the last summer, hoboing it, as the phrase was. "'And you?' he asked finally. "'Have you been here ever since?' "'Lord, no,' said the other. "'I only came in the day before yesterday. It's the second time they've sent me up on a trumped-up charge. I've had hard luck and can't pay them what they want. Why don't you quit Chicago with me, Jurgis?' "'I've no place to go,' said Jurgis sadly. "'Neither have I,' replied the other, laughing lightly. "'But we'll wait till we get out and see.' In the Bridewell Jurgis met few who had been there the last time, but he met scores of others, old and young, of exactly the same sort. It was like breakers upon a beach. There was new water, but the wave looked just the same. He strolled about and talked with them, and the biggest of them told tales of their prowess, while those who were weaker, or younger and inexperienced, gathered round and listened in admiring silence. The last time he was there Jurgis had thought of little but his family, but now he was free to listen to these men, and to realize that he was one of them, that their point of view was his point of view, and that the way they kept themselves alive in the world was the way he meant to do it in the future. And so, when he was turned out of prison again, without a penny in his pocket, he went straight to Jack Duane. He went full of humility and gratitude, for Duane was a gentleman, and a man with a profession, and it was remarkable that he should be willing to throw in his lot with a humble working man, one who had even been a beggar and a tramp. Jurgis could not see what help he could be to him, but he did not understand that a man like himself, who could be trusted to stand by any one who was kind to him, was as rare among criminals as among any other class of men. The address Jurgis had was a garret room in the ghetto district, the home of a pretty little French girl, Duane's mistress, who sewed all day and eked out her living by prostitution. He had gone elsewhere, she told Jurgis. He was afraid to stay there now, on account of the police. The new address was a cellar dive, whose proprietor said that he had never heard of Duane, but after he had put Jurgis through a catechism he showed him a back stairs which led to a fence in the rear of a pawnbroker's shop, and thence to a number of assignation rooms, in one of which Duane was hiding. Duane was glad to see him. He was without a cent of money, he said, and had been waiting for Jurgis to help him get some. He explained his plan. In fact, he spent the day in laying bare to his friend the criminal world of the city, and in showing him how he might earn himself a living in it. That winter he would have a hard time, on account of his arm, and because of an unwanted fit of activity of the police. 
but so long as he was unknown to them he would be safe if he were careful. Here at Papa Hansen's, so they called the old man who kept the dive, he might rest at ease, for Papa Hansen was square, would stand by him so long as he paid, and gave him an hour's notice if there were to be a police raid. Also Rosenstag, the pawnbroker, would buy anything he had for a third of its value, and guarantee to keep it hidden for a year. There was an oil stove in the little cupboard of a room, and they had some supper, and then about eleven o'clock at night they sallied forth together, by a rear entrance to the place, Duane armed with a slingshot. They came to a residence district, and he sprang up a lamp-post and blew out the light, and then the two dodged into the shelter of an area step and hid in silence. Pretty soon a man came by, a working man, and they let him go. Then, after a long interval, came the heavy tread of a policeman, and they held their breath till he was gone. Though half frozen, they waited a full quarter of an hour after that, and then again came footsteps, walking briskly. Duane nudged Jurgis, and the instant the man had passed they rose up. Duane stole out as silently as a shadow, and a second later Jurgis heard a thud and a stifled cry. He was only a couple of feet behind, and he leaped to stop the man's mouth, while Duane held him fast by the arms as they had agreed. But the man was limp and showed a tendency to fall, and so Jurgis had only to hold him by the collar, while the other with swift fingers went through his pockets, ripping open first his overcoat, and then his coat, and then his vest, searching inside and out, and transferring the contents into his own pockets. At last, after feeling of the man's fingers and in his necktie, Duane whispered, "'That's all,' and they dragged him to the area and dropped him in. Then Jurgis went one way, and his friend the other, walking briskly. The latter arrived first, and Jurgis found him examining the swag. There was a gold watch, for one thing, with a chain and locket. There was a silver pencil and a matchbox and a handful of small change and finally a card-case. This last Duane opened feverishly. There were letters and checks, and two theater tickets, and at last, in the back part, a wad of bills. He counted them. There was a twenty, five tens, four fives, and three ones. Duane drew a long breath. "'That lets us out,' he said. After further examination they burned the card-case and its contents, all but the bills, and likewise the picture of a little girl in the locket. Then Duane took the watch and trinkets downstairs, and came back with sixteen dollars. "'The old scoundrel said the case was filled,' he said. "'It's a lie, but he knows I want the money.' They divided up the spoils, and Jurgis got as his share fifty-five dollars and some change. He protested that it was too much, but the other had agreed to divide even. "'That was a good haul,' he said better than average. When they got up in the morning Jurgis was sent out to buy a paper. One of the pleasures of committing a crime was the reading about it afterward. I had a pal that always did it, Duane remarked, laughing, until one day he read that he had left three thousand dollars in a lower inside pocket of his party's vest. There was a half-column account of the robbery. It was evident that a gang was operating in the neighborhood, said the paper for it was the third within a week, and the police were apparently powerless. The victim 
was an insurance agent, and he had lost a hundred and ten dollars that did not belong to him. He had chanced to have his name marked on his shirt, otherwise he would not have been identified yet. His assailant had hit him too hard, and he was suffering from concussion of the brain, and also he had been half-frozen when found, and would lose three fingers on his right hand. The enterprising newspaper reporter had taken all this information to his family and told how they had received it. Since it was Jurgis' first experience, these details naturally caused him some worriment, but the other laughed coolly. It was the way of the game, and there was no helping it. Before long Jurgis would think no more of it than they did in the yards of knocking out a bullock. It's a case of us or the other fellow, and I say the other fellow every time, he observed. Still, said Jurgis reflectively, he never did us any harm. He was doing it to somebody as hard as he could, you can be sure of that, said his friend. Duane had already explained to Jurgis that if a man of their trade were known he would have to work all the time to satisfy the demands of the police. Therefore it would be better for Jurgis to stay in hiding and never be seen in public with his pal. But Jurgis soon got very tired of staying in hiding. In a couple of weeks he was feeling strong and beginning to use his arm, and then he could not stand it any longer. Duane, who had done a job of some sort by himself, and made a truce with the powers, brought over Marie, his little French girl, to share with him. But even that did not avail for long, and in the end he had to give up arguing and take Jurgis out and introduce him to the saloons and sporting-houses where the big crooks and hold-up men hung out and so Jurgis got a glimpse of the high-class criminal world of Chicago. The city, which was owned by an oligarchy of businessmen, being nominally ruled by the people, a huge army of graft was necessary for the purpose of effecting the transfer of power. Twice a year in the spring and fall elections millions of dollars were furnished by the businessmen and expended by this army. Meetings were held and clever speakers were hired bands played and rockets sizzled, tons of documents and reservoirs of drinks were distributed, and tens of thousands of votes were bought for cash. And this army of graft had, of course, to be maintained the year round. The leaders and organizers were maintained by the businessmen directly, aldermen and legislators by means of bribes, party officials out of the campaign funds, lobbyists and corporation lawyers in the form of salaries, contractors by means of jobs, labor union leaders by subsidies, and newspaper proprietors and editors by advertisements. The rank and file, however, were either foisted upon the city or else lived off the population directly. There was the police department and the fire and water departments, and the whole balance of the civil list from the meanest office-boy to the head of a city department, and for the horde who could find no room in these there was the world of vice and crime, there was license to seduce, to swindle, and plunder, and prey. The law forbade Sunday drinking, and this had delivered the saloon-keepers into the hands of the police, and made an alliance between them necessary. The law forbade prostitution, and this had brought the madams into the combination. It was the same with the gambling-house-keeper and the pool-room man, 
and the same with any other man or woman who had a means of getting graft, and was willing to pay over a share of it. The green goods man and the highwayman, the pickpocket and the sneak thief, and the receiver of stolen goods, the seller of adulterated milk, of stale fruit and diseased meat, the proprietor of unsanitary tenements, the fake doctor and the usurer, the beggar and the pushcart man, the prize-fighter and the professional slugger, the racetrack tout, the procurer, the white slave agent and the expert seducer of young girls. All of these agencies of corruption were banded together, and leagued in blood brotherhood with the politician and the police. More often than not they were one and the same person. The police captain would own the brothel he pretended to raid. The politician would open his headquarters in his saloon. Hinky Dink or Bathhouse John or others of that ilk were proprietors of the most notorious dives in Chicago, and also the gray wolves of the city council who gave away the streets of the city to the businessmen, and those who patronized their places were the gamblers and prize-fighters who set the law at defiance, and the burglars and hold-up men who kept the whole city in terror. On election day all these powers of vice and crime were one power. They could tell within one percent what the vote of their district would be, and they could change it at an hour's notice. A month ago Jurgis had all but perished of starvation upon the streets, and now suddenly, as by the gift of a magic key, he had entered into a world where money and all the good things of life came freely. He was introduced by his friend to an Irishman named Buck Halloran, who was a political worker and on the inside of things. This man talked with Jurgis for a while, and then told him that he had a little plan by which a man who looked like a working man might make some easy money. But it was a private affair, and had to be kept quiet. Jurgis expressed himself as agreeable, and the other took him that afternoon—it was Saturday—to a place where city laborers were being paid off. The paymaster sat in a little booth with a pile of envelopes before him, and two policemen standing by. Jurgis went according to directions and gave the name of Michael O'Flaherty, and received an envelope, which he took around the corner and delivered to Halloran, who was waiting for him in a saloon. Then he went again and gave the name of Johann Schmidt, and a third time and gave the name of Sergei Remititsky. Halloran had quite a list of imaginary workingmen, and Jurgis got an envelope for each one. For this work he received five dollars, and was told that he might have it every week so long as he kept quiet. As Jurgis was excellent at keeping quiet, he soon won the trust of Buck Halloran, and was introduced to others as a man who could be depended upon. This acquaintance was useful to him in another way, also before long Jurgis made his discovery of the meaning of pull, and just why his boss, Connor, and also the pugilist bartender, had been able to send him to jail. One night there was given a ball, the benefit of one-eyed Larry, a lame man who played the violin in one of the big high-class houses of prostitution on Clark Street, and was a wag and a popular character on the levee. This ball was held in a big dance hall, and was one of the occasions when the city's power of debauchery gave themselves up to madness. 
Jurgis attended and got half insane with drink, and began quarreling over a girl. His arm was pretty strong by then, and he set to work to clean out the place, and ended in a cell in the police station. The police station, being crowded to the doors and stinking with bums, Jurgis did not relish staying there to sleep off his liquor, and sent for Halloran, who called up the district leader and had Jurgis bailed out by telephone at four o'clock in the morning. When he was arraigned that same morning, the district leader had already seen the clerk of the court and explained that Jurgis Rudkist was a decent fellow who had been indiscreet, and so Jurgis was fined ten dollars and the fine was suspended, which meant he did not have to pay for it and never would have to pay it unless somebody chose to bring it up against him in the future. Among the people Jurgis lived with now money was valued according to an entirely different standard from that of the people of Packingtown. Yet strange as it may seem, he did a great deal less drinking than he had as a working man. He had not the same provocations of exhaustion and hopelessness. He had now something to work for, to struggle for. He soon found that if he kept his wits about him, he would come upon new opportunities, and being naturally an active man, he not only kept sober himself, but helped to steady his friend, who was a great deal fonder of both wine and women than he. One thing led to another. In the saloon where Jurgis met Buck Halloran, he was sitting late one night with Duane, when a country customer, a buyer for an out-of-town merchant, came in a little more than half-piped. There was no one else in the place but the bartender, and as the man went out again Jurgis and Duane followed him. He went round the corner, and in a dark place made by a combination of the elevated railroad and an unrented building Jurgis leaped forward and shoved a revolver under his nose, while Duane, with his hat pulled over his eyes, went through the man's pockets with lightning fingers. They got his watch and his wad and were round the corner again and into the saloon before he could shout more than once. The bartender to whom they had tipped the wink had the cellar door open for them, and they vanished, making their way by a secret entrance to a brothel next door. From the roof of this there was access to three similar places beyond. By means of these passages the customers of any one place could be gotten out of the way, in case of falling out with the police chance to lead to a raid, and also it was necessary to have a way of getting a girl out of reach in case of an emergency. Thousands of them came to Chicago answering advertisements for servants and factory hands, and found themselves trapped by fake employment agencies and locked up in a bawdy house. It was generally enough to take all their clothes away from them, but sometimes they would have to be doped and kept prisoners for weeks, and meantime their parents might be telegraphing the police and even coming on to see why nothing was done. Occasionally there was no way of satisfying them but to let them search the place to which the girl had been traced. For his help in this little job the bartender received twenty out of the hundred and thirty-odd dollars that the pair secured, and naturally this put them on friendly terms with him and a few days later he introduced them to a little sheeny named Goldberger, one of the runners of the sporting house where they had been hidden. 
After a few drinks Goldberger began with some hesitation to narrate how he had had a quarrel over his best girl with a professional card-sharp who had hit him in the jaw. The fellow was a stranger in Chicago, and if he was found some night with his head cracked there would be no one to care very much. Jurgis, who by this time would cheerfully have cracked the heads of all the gamblers in Chicago, inquired what would be coming to him, at which the Jew became still more confidential, and said that he had some tips on the New Orleans races, which he got direct from the police captain of the district, whom he had got out of a bad scrape, and who stood in with a big syndicate of horse-owners. Duane took all this in at once, but Jurgis had to have the whole racetrack situation explained to him before he realized the importance of such an opportunity. There was the gigantic racing trust. It owned the legislatures in every state in which it did business. It even owned some of the big newspapers and made public opinion. There was no power in the land that could oppose it unless, perhaps, it were the pool-room trust. It built magnificent racing parks all over the country, and by means of enormous purses it lured the people to come, and then it organized a gigantic shell game, whereby it plundered them of hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Horse racing had once been a sport, but nowadays it was a business. A horse could be doped and doctored, undertrained or overtrained. It could be made to fall at any moment, or its gait could be broken by lashing it with the whip, which all the spectators would take to be a desperate effort to keep it in the lead. There were scores of such tricks, and sometimes it was the owners who played them and made fortunes, sometimes it was the jockeys and trainers, sometimes it was outsiders who bribed them, but most of the time it was the chiefs of the trust. Now, for instance, they were having winter racing in New Orleans, and a syndicate was laying out each day's program in advance, and its agents in all the northern cities were milking the pool-rooms. The word came by long-distance telephone in a cipher code, just a little while before each race, and any man who could get the secret had as good as a fortune. If Jurgis did not believe it, he could try it, said the little Jew. Let them meet at a certain house on the morrow and make a test. Jurgis was willing, and so was Duane, and so they went to one of the high-class pool-rooms where brokers and merchants gambled with society women in a private room, and they put up ten dollars each upon a horse called Black Beldum, a six-to-one shot, and won. For a secret like that they would have done a good many sluggings, but the next day Goldberger informed them that the offending gambler had got wind of what was coming to him, and had skipped the town. There were ups and downs at the business, but there was always a living, inside of a jail if not out of it. Early in April the city's elections were due, and that meant prosperity for all the powers of graft. Jurgis, hanging round in dives and gambling-houses and brothels, met with the healers of both parties, and from their conversation he came to understand all the ins and outs of the game, and to hear of a number of ways in which he could make himself useful about election time. Buck Halloran was a Democrat, and so Jurgis became a Democrat also, but he was not a bitter one. The Republicans were good fellows, too, 
and were to have a pile of money in this next campaign. At the last election the Republicans had paid four dollars a vote to the Democrats' three, and Buck Halloran sat one night playing cards with Jurgis and another man who told how Halloran had been charged with the job voting a bunch of thirty-seven newly landed Italians, and how he, the narrator, had met the Republican worker who was after the very same gang, and how the three had effected a bargain whereby the Italians were to vote half and half for a glass of beer apiece, while the balance of the fund went to the conspirators. Not long after this Jurgis, wearying of the risks and vicissitudes of miscellaneous crime, was moved to give up the career for that of a politician. Just at this time there was a tremendous uproar being raised concerning the alliance between the criminals and the police, for the criminal graft was one in which the businessmen had no direct part. It was what is called a sideline, carried by the police. Wide-open gambling and debauchery made the city pleasing to trade, but burglaries and hold-ups did not. One night it chanced that while Jack Duane was drilling a safe in a clothing store he was caught red-handed by the night watchman, and turned over to a policeman who chanced to know him well, and who took the responsibility of letting him make his escape. Such a howl from the newspapers followed this that Duane was slated for sacrifice and barely got out of town in time. And just at that juncture it happened that Jurgis was introduced to a man named Harper, whom he recognized as the night watchman at Brown's, who had been instrumental in making him an American citizen the first year of his arrival at the yards. The other was interested in the coincidence, but did not remember Jurgis. He had handled too many green ones in his time, he said. He sat in a dance-hall with Jurgis and Halloran until one or two in the morning, exchanging experiences. He had a long story to tell of his quarrel with the superintendent of his department, and how he was now a plain working man, and a good union man as well. It was not until some months afterward that Jurgis understood that the quarrel with the superintendent had been prearranged, and that Harper was in reality drawing a salary of twenty dollars a week from the packers for an inside report of his union's secret proceedings. The yards were seething with agitation just then, said the man, speaking as a unionist. The people of Packingtown had borne about all that they would bear, and it looked as if a strike might begin any week. After this talk the man made inquiries concerning Jurgis, and a couple of days later he came to him with an interesting proposition. He was not absolutely certain, he said, but he thought that he could get him a regular salary if he would come to Packingtown and do as he was told and keep his mouth shut. Harper, Bush Harper, he was called, was a right-hand man of Mike Scully, the Democratic boss of the stockyards, and in the coming election there was a peculiar situation. There had come to Scully a proposition to nominate a certain rich brewer who lived upon a swell boulevard that skirted the district, and who coveted the big badge and the honorable of an alderman. The brewer was a Jew and had no brains, but he was harmless, and would put up a rare campaign fund. Scully had accepted the offer, and then gone to the Republicans with a proposition. He was not sure that he could manage the Sheeny, and he did not mean to take any chances with his district. 
let the Republicans nominate a certain obscure but amiable friend of Scully's, who was now setting ten-pins in the cellar of an Ashland Avenue saloon, and he, Scully, would elect him with the Sheeney's money, and the Republicans might have the glory, which was more than they would get otherwise. In return for this the Republicans would agree to put up no candidate the following year, when Scully himself came up for re-election, as the other aldermen from the ward. To this the Republicans had assented at once. But the hell of it was, so Harper explained, that the Republicans were all of them fools. A man had to be a fool to be a Republican in the stockyards where Scully was king. And they didn't know how to work, and of course it would not do for the Democratic workers, the noble redskins of the War Whoop League, to support the Republican openly. The difficulty would have been so great except for another fact. There had been a curious development in stockyards politics in the last year or two, a new party having leaped into being. They were the socialists, and it was a devil of a mess, said Bush Harper. The one image which the word socialist brought to Jurgis was a poor little Tamoshius Kuschleika, who had called himself one, and would go out with a couple of other men and a soapbox, and shout himself hoarse on a street corner Saturday nights. Tomosius had tried to explain to Jurgis what it was all about, but Jurgis, who was not of an imaginative turn, had never quite got it straight. At present he was content with his companion's explanation that the socialists were the enemies of American institutions, could not be bought, and would not combine or make any sort of a dicker. Mike Scully was very much worried over the opportunity which his last deal gave to them, the stockyards Democrats were furious at the idea of a rich capitalist for their candidate, and while they were changing they might possibly conclude that a socialist firebrand was preferable to a Republican bum. And so right here was a chance for Jurgis to make himself a place in the world, explained Bush Harbor. He had been a union man, and he was known in the yards as a working man. He must have hundreds of acquaintances, and as he had never talked politics with them he might come out as a Republican now without exciting the least suspicion. There were barrels of money for the use of those who could deliver the goods, and Jurgis might count upon Mike Scully, who had never yet gone back on a friend. Just what could he do? Jurgis asked, in some perplexity, and the other explained in detail. To begin with he would have to go to the yards and work, and he might not relish that but he would have what he earned as well as the rest that came to him. He would get active in the union again, and perhaps try to get an office as he, Harper, had. He would tell all his friends the good points of Doyle, the Republican nominee, and the bad ones of the Sheeney, and then Scully would furnish a meeting-place, and he would start the Young Men's Republican Association, or something of that sort, and have the rich brewer's best beer by the hogshead, and fireworks and speeches, just like the war-whoop league. Surely Jurgis must know hundreds of men who would like that sort of fun, and there would be the regular Republican leaders and workers to help him out, and they would deliver a big enough majority on election day. When he had heard all this explanation to the end, Jurgis demanded, But how can I get a job in Packingtown? I'm blacklisted. At which Bush Harper laughed. I'll attend to that, all right, he said. And the other replied, it's a go, then. I'm your man. So Jurgis went out to the stockyards again, and was introduced to the political lord of the district, 
the boss of Chicago's mayor. It was Scully who owned the brickyards and the dump and the ice pond, though Jurgis did not know it. It was Scully who was to blame for the unpaved street in which Jurgis' child had been drowned. It was Scully who had put into office the magistrate who had first sent Jurgis to jail. It was Scully who was principal stockholder in the company which had sold him the ramshackle tenement and then robbed him of it. But Jurgis knew none of these things, any more than he knew that Scully was but a tool and puppet of the Packers. To him Scully was a mighty power, the biggest man he had ever met. He was a little dried-up Irishman whose hands shook. He had a brief talk with his visitor, watching him with his rat-like eyes and making up his mind about him, and then he gave him a note to Mr. Harmon, one of the head managers of Durham's. The bearer, Jurgis Rudkus, is a particular friend of mine, and I would like you to find him a good place for important reasons. He was once indiscreet, but you will perhaps be so good as to overlook that. Mr. Harmon looked up inquiringly when he read this. "'What does he mean by indiscreet?' he asked. "'I was blacklisted, sir,' said Jurgis. At which the other frowned. "'Blacklisted?' he said. "'How do you mean?' And Jurgis turned red with embarrassment. He had forgotten that a blacklist did not exist. "'I—that is, I had difficulty in getting a place,' he stammered. "'What was the matter?' I got into a quarrel with a foreman, not my own boss, sir, and struck him. I see, said the other, and meditated for a few moments. What do you wish to do? he asked. Anything, sir, said Jurgis, only I had a broken arm this winter, and so I have to be careful. How would it suit you to be a night watchman? That wouldn't do, sir. I have to be among the men at night. I see. Politics. Well, would it suit you to trim hogs? Yes, sir, said Jurgis. And Mr. Harmon called the timekeeper and said, Take this fellow to Pat Murphy and tell him to find room for him somehow. And so Jurgis marched into the hog-killing room, a place where, in the days gone by, he had come begging for a job. Now he walked jauntily and smiled to himself, seeing the frown that came to the boss's face as the timekeeper said, Mr. Harmon says to put this man on. It would overcrowd his department and spoil the record he was trying to make. But he said not a word except, All right. And so Jurgis became a working man once more, and straightway he sought out his old friends and joined the union, and began to root for Scotty Doyle. Doyle had done him a good turn once, he explained, and was really a bully chap. Doyle was a working man himself, and would represent the working men. Why did they want to vote for a millionaire Sheeny, and what the hell had Mike Scully ever done for them that they should back his candidates all the time? And meantime Scully had given Jurgis a note to the Republican leader of the ward, and he had gone there and met the crowd he was to work with. Already they had hired a big hall, with some of the brewers' money, and every night Jurgis brought in a dozen new members of the Doyle Republican Association. Pretty soon they had a grand opening night, and there was a brass band which marched through the streets, and fireworks and bombs and red lights in front of the hall, and there was an enormous crowd with two overflow meetings, so that the pale and trembling candidate had to recite three times over the little speech which one of Scully's henchmen had written. 
and which he had been a month learning by heart. Best of all, the famous and eloquent Senator Spareshanks, presidential candidate, rode out in an automobile to discuss the sacred privileges of American citizenship and protection and prosperity for the American working man. His inspiring address was quoted to the extent of half a column in all the morning newspapers, which also said that it could be stated upon excellent authority that the unexpected popularity developed by Doyle, the Republican candidate for alderman, was giving great anxiety to Mr. Scully, the chairman of the Democratic City Committee. The chairman was still more worried when the monster torchlight procession came off, with the members of the Doyle Republican Association all in red capes and hats, and free beer for every worker in the ward, the best beer ever given away in a political campaign, as the whole electorate testified. During this parade, and at innumerable cart-tail meetings as well, Jurgis labored tirelessly. He did not make any speeches, there were lawyers and other experts for that, but he helped to manage things, distributing notices and posting placards and bringing out the crowds, and when the show was on he attended to the fireworks and the beer. Thus in the course of the campaign he handled many hundreds of dollars of the Hebrew brewer's money, administering it with naive and touching fidelity. Toward the end, however, he learned that he was regarded with hatred by the rest of the boys, because he compelled them either to make a poorer showing than he or to do without their share of the pie. After that Jurgis did his best to please them, and to make up for the time he had lost before he discovered the extra bungholes of the campaign barrel. He pleased Mike Scully also. On election morning he was out at four o'clock getting out the vote. He had a two-horse carriage to ride in, and he went from house to house for his friends and escorted them in triumph to the polls. He voted half a dozen times himself, and voted some of his friends as often. He brought bunch after bunch of the newest foreigners, Lithuanians, Poles, Bohemians, and Slovaks, and when he had put them through the mill he turned them over to another man to take to the next polling place. When Jurgis first set out, the captain of the precinct gave him a hundred dollars, and three times in the course of the day he came for another hundred, and not more than twenty-five out of each lot got stuck in his own pocket. The balance all went for actual votes, and on a day of democratic landslides they elected Scotty Doyle, the ex-tenpin setter, by nearly a thousand plurality, and beginning at five o'clock in the afternoon and ending at three the next morning Jurgis treated himself to a most unholy and horrible jag. Nearly everyone else in Packingtown did the same, however, for there was universal exultation over this triumph of popular government, this crushing defeat of an arrogant plutocrat by the power of the common people. End of chapter 25 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter Twenty Six of the Jungle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Chapter Twenty Six. After the elections, Jurgis stayed on in Packingtown and kept his job. 
The agitation to break up the police protection of criminals was continuing, and it seemed to him best to lay low for the present. He had nearly three hundred dollars in the bank, and might have considered himself entitled to a vacation, but he had an easy job and force of habit kept him at it. Besides, Mike Scully, whom he consulted, advised him that something might turn up before long. Jurgis got himself a place in a boarding-house with some congenial friends. He had already inquired of Anile and learned that Elzbieta and her family had gone downtown, and so he gave no further thought to them. He went with a new set now, young, unmarried fellows who were sporty. Jurgis had long ago cast off his fertilizer clothing, and since going into politics he had donned a linen collar and a greasy red necktie. He had some reason for thinking of his dress, for he was making about eleven dollars a week, and two-thirds of it he might spend upon his pleasures without ever touching his savings. Sometimes he would ride downtown with a party of friends to the cheap theaters and the music halls and other haunts with which they were familiar. Many of the saloons in Packingtown had pool tables, and some of them bowling alleys, by means of which he could spend his evenings in petty gambling. Also there were cards and dice. One time Jurgis got into a game on a Saturday night and won prodigiously, and because he was a man of spirit he stayed in with the rest and the game continued until late Sunday afternoon. And by that time he was out over twenty dollars. On Saturday nights also a number of balls were generally given in Packingtown. Each man would bring his girl with him, paying half a dollar for a ticket, and several dollars additional for drinks in the course of the festivities, which continued until three or four o'clock in the morning, unless broken up by fighting. During all this time the same man and woman would dance together, half stupefied with sensuality and drink. Before long Jurgis discovered what Scully had meant by something turning up. In May the agreement between the Packers and the Unions expired, and a new agreement had to be signed. Negotiations were going on, and the yards were full of talk of a strike. The old scale had dealt with the wages of the skilled men only, and of the members of the Meat Workers' Union about two-thirds were unskilled men. In Chicago these latter were receiving, for the most part, eighteen and a half cents an hour, and the unions wished to make this the general wage for the next year. It was not nearly so large a wage as it seemed. In the course of the negotiations the union officers examined time checks to the amount of ten thousand dollars, and they found that the highest wages paid had been fourteen dollars a week, and the lowest two dollars and five cents and the average of the whole six dollars and sixty-five cents. And six dollars and sixty-five cents was hardly too much for a man to keep a family on, considering the fact that the price of dressed meat had increased nearly fifty per cent in the last five years, while the price of beef on the hoof had decreased as much. It would have seemed that the packers ought to be able to pay it. But the packers were unwilling to pay it. They rejected the union demand, and to show what their purpose was, a week or two after the agreement expired, they put down the wages of about a thousand men to sixteen and a half cents, and it was said that old man Jones had vowed 
he would put them to fifteen before he got through. There were a million and a half of men in the country looking for work, a hundred thousand of them right in Chicago. And were the packers to let the Union stewards march into their places and bind them to a contract that would lose them several thousand dollars a day for a year? Not much. All this was in June, and before long the question was submitted to a referendum in the unions, and the decision was for a strike. It was the same in all the packing-house cities, and suddenly the newspapers and public woke up to face the gruesome spectacle of a meat famine. All sorts of pleas for a reconsideration were made, but the packers were obdurate, and all the while they were reducing wages and heading off shipments of cattle and rushing in wagon-loads of mattresses and cots. So the men boiled over and one night telegrams went out from the Union headquarters to all the big packing centers, to St. Paul, South Omaha, Sioux City, St. Joseph's, Kansas City, East St. Louis, and New York, and the next day at noon between fifty and sixty thousand men drew off their working clothes and marched out of the factories, and the great beef strike was on. Jurgis went to his dinner, and afterward he walked over to see Mike Scully, who lived in a fine house, upon a street which had been decently paved and lighted for his especial benefit. Scully had gone into semi-retirement, and looked nervous and worried. "'What do you want?' he demanded, when he saw Jurgis. "'I came to see if maybe you could get me a place during the strike,' the other replied. And Scully knit his brows and eyed him narrowly. In that morning's papers Jurgis had read a fierce denunciation of the packers by Scully, who had declared that if they did not treat their people better the city authorities would end the matter by tearing down their plants. Now, therefore, Jurgis was not a little taken aback when the other demanded suddenly, "'See here, Rodkus, why don't you stick by your job?' Jurgis started. "'Work as a scab?' he cried. "'Why not?' demanded Scully. "'What's that to you?' But, but, stammered Jurgis, he had somehow taken it for granted that he should go out with his union. The packers need good men, and need them bad, continued the other, and they'll treat a man right that stands by them. Why don't you take your chance and fix yourself? But, said Jurgis, how could I ever be of any use to you in politics? You can't be it anyhow, said Scully abruptly. Why not? asked Jurgis. "'Hell, man!' cried the other. "'Don't you know you're a Republican? And do you think I'm always going to elect Republicans? My brewer has found out already how we served him, and there is the deuce to pay.' Jurgis looked dumbfounded. He had never thought of that aspect of it before. "'I could be a Democrat,' he said. "'Yes,' responded the other, "'but not right away. A man can't change his politics every day. And besides, I don't need you. There'd be nothing for you to do. And it's a long time to election day, anyhow. And what are you going to do meantime? I thought I could count on you, began Jurgis. Yes, responded Scully. So you could. I never yet went back on a friend. But is it fair to leave the job I got you and come to me for another? I have had a hundred fellows after me today. And what can I do? 
I've put seventeen men on the city payroll to clean streets this one week, and do you think I can keep that up forever? It wouldn't do for me to tell other men what I tell you, but you've been on the inside, and you ought to have sense enough to see for yourself. What have you to gain by a strike? I hadn't thought, said Jurgis. Exactly, said Scully, but you'd better. Take my word for it, the strike will be over in a few days, and the men will be beaten, and meantime what you can get out of it will belong to you. Do you see? And Jurgis saw. He went back to the yards and into the workroom. The men had left a long line of hogs in various stages of preparation, and the foreman was directing the feeble efforts of a score or two of clerks and stenographers and office boys to finish up the job and get them into the chilling rooms. Jurgis went straight up to him and announced, "'I have come back to work, Mr. Murphy.' The boss's face lighted up. "'Good man!' he cried. "'Come ahead.' "'Just a moment,' said Jurgis, checking his enthusiasm. "'I think I ought to get a little more wages.' "'Yes,' replied the other. "'Of course. What do you want?' Jurgis had debated on the way. His nerve almost failed him now, but he clenched his hands. "'I think I ought to have three dollars a day,' he said. "'All right,' said the other promptly, and before the day was out our friend discovered that the clerks and stenographers and office boys were getting five dollars a day, and then he could have kicked himself. So Jurgis became one of the new American heroes, a man whose virtues merited comparison with those of the martyrs of Lexington and Valley Forge. The resemblance was not complete, of course, for Jurgis was generously paid and comfortably clad, and was provided with a spring cot and a mattress and three substantial meals a day. Also he was perfectly at ease and safe from all peril of life and limb, save only in the case that a desire for beer should lead him to venture outside of the stockyard's gates. And even in the exercise of this privilege he was not left unprotected. A good part of the inadequate police force of Chicago was suddenly diverted from its work of hunting criminals and rushed out to serve him. The police and the strikers also were determined that there should be no violence, but there was another party interested which was minded to the contrary, and that was the press. On the first day of his life as a strike-breaker Jurgis quit work early, and in a spirit of bravado he challenged three men of his acquaintance to go outside and get a drink. They accepted and went through the big Halstead Street gate, where several policemen were watching, and also some union pickets scanning sharply those who passed in and out. Jurgis and his companions went south on Halstead Street, past the hotel, and then suddenly half a dozen men started across the street toward them, and proceeded to argue with them concerning the error of their ways. As the arguments were not taken in the proper spirit they went on to threats, and suddenly one of them jerked off the hat of one of the four and flung it over the fence. The man started after it, and then, as a cry of scab was raised and a dozen people came running out of saloons and doorways, a second man's heart failed him and he followed. Jurgis and the fourth stayed long enough to give themselves the satisfaction of a quick exchange of blows, and then they too took to their heels and fled back of the hotel and into the yards again. Meantime, of course, 
policemen were coming on a run, and as a crowd gathered other police got excited and sent in a riot call. Jurgis knew nothing of this, but went back to Packers Avenue, and in front of the central time station he saw one of his companions, breathless and wild with excitement, narrating to an ever-growing throng how the four had been attacked and surrounded by a howling mob and had been nearly torn to pieces. While he stood listening, smiling cynically, several dapper young men stood by with notebooks in their hands, and it was not more than two hours later that Jurgis saw newsboys running about with armfuls of newspapers printed in red and black letters six inches high. Violence in the yards, strike-breakers surrounded by frenzied mob. If he had been able to buy all of the newspapers of the United States the next morning, he might have discovered that his beer-hunting exploit was being perused by some two-score millions of people, and had served as a text for editorials in half the staid and solemn businessmen's newspapers in the land. Jurgis was to see more of this as time passed. For the present, his work being over, he was free to ride into the city by a railroad direct from the yards, or else to spend the night in a room where cots had been laid in rows. He chose the latter, but to his regret, for all night long gangs of strike-breakers kept arriving. As very few of the better class of workingmen could be got for such work, these specimens of the new American hero contained an assortment of the criminals and thugs of the city, besides Negroes and the lowest foreigners, Greeks, Romanians, Sicilians, and Slovaks. They had been attracted more by the prospect of disorder than by the big wages, and they made the night hideous with singing and carousing, and only went to sleep when the time came for them to get up to work. In the morning, before Jurgis had finished his breakfast, Pat Murphy ordered him to one of the superintendents, who questioned him as to his experience in the work of the killing room. His heart began to thump with excitement, for he divined instantly that his hour had come, that he was to be a boss. Some of the foremen were union members, and many who were not had gone out with the men. It was in the killing department that the packers had been left most in the lurch, and precisely here that they could least afford it. The smoking and canning and salting of meat might wait, and all the by-products might be wasted, but fresh meats must be had, or the restaurants and hotels and brownstone houses would feel the pinch, and then public opinion would take a startling turn. An opportunity such as this would not come twice to a man, and Jurgis seized it. Yes, he knew the work, the whole of it, and he could teach it to others, but if he took the job and gave satisfaction he would expect to keep it they would not turn him off at the end of the strike? To which the superintendent replied that he might safely trust Durham's for that. They proposed to teach these unions a lesson, and most of all those foremen who had gone back on them. Jurgis would receive five dollars a day during the strike, and twenty-five a week after it was settled. So our friend got a pair of slaughter-pen boots and jeans, and flung himself at the task. It was a weird sight, there on the killing beds, a throng of stupid black negroes and foreigners who could not understand a word that was said to them, mixed 
with pale-faced, hollow-chested bookkeepers and clerks, half fainting for the tropical heat and the sickening stench of fresh blood, and all struggling to dress a dozen or two cattle in the same place where, twenty-four hours ago, the old killing gang had been speeding, with their marvelous precision turning out four hundred carcasses every hour. The negroes and the toughs from the levee did not want to work, and every few minutes some of them would feel obliged to retire and recuperate. In a couple of days Durham and company had electric fans up to cool off the rooms for them, and even couches for them to rest on, and meantime they could go out and find a shady corner and take a snooze, and as there was no place for anyone in particular and no system, it might be hours before their boss discovered them. As for the poor office employees, they did their best, moved to it by terror. Thirty of them had been fired in a bunch that first morning for refusing to serve, besides a number of women clerks and typewriters who had declined to act as waitresses. It was such a force as this that Jurgis had to organize. He did his best, flying here and there, placing them in rows and showing them the tricks. He had never given an order in his life before, but he had taken enough of them to know, and he soon fell into the spirit of it and roared and stormed like any old stager. He had not the most tractable pupils, however. "'See here, boss,' a big black buck would begin, "'if you don't like the way I does this job, you can get somebody else to do it. Then a crowd would gather and listen, muttering threats. After the first meal nearly all the steel knives had been missing, and now every negro had one, round to a fine point, hidden in his boots. There was no bringing order out of such a chaos, Jurgis soon discovered, and he fell in with the spirit of the thing. There was no reason why he should wear himself out with shouting. If hides and guts were slashed and rendered useless, there was no way of tracing it to anyone, and if a man lay off and forgot to come back there was nothing to be gained by seeking him, for all the rest would quit in the meantime. Everything went during the strike and the packers paid. Before long Jurgis found that the custom of resting had suggested to some alert minds the possibility of registering at more than one place and earning more than one five dollars a day. When he caught a man at this he fired him, but it chanced to be in a quiet corner, and the man tendered him a ten-dollar bill and a wink, and he took them. Of course before long this custom spread, and Jurgis was soon making quite a good income from it. In the face of handicaps such as these the packers counted themselves lucky if they could kill off the cattle that had been crippled in transit and the hogs that had developed disease. Frequently, in the course of a two or three days' trip, in hot weather and without water, some hog would develop cholera and die, and the rest would attack him before he had ceased kicking, and when the car was open there would be nothing of him left but the bones. If all the hogs in this carload were not killed at once, they would soon be down with the dread disease and there would be nothing to do but make them into lard." It was the same with cattle that were gored and dying, or were limping with broken bones stuck through their flesh. They must be killed, 
even if brokers and buyers and superintendents had to take off their coats and help drive and cut and skin them. And meantime agents of the packers were gathering gangs of negroes in the country districts of the far south, promising them five dollars a day and board, and being careful not to mention there was a strike. Already carloads of them were on the way, with special rates from the railroads, and all traffic ordered out of the way. Many towns and cities were taking advantage of the chance to clear out their jails and workhouses. In Detroit the magistrates would release every man who agreed to leave town within twenty-four hours, and agents of the packers were in the courtrooms to ship them right. And meantime trainloads of supplies were coming in for their accommodation, including beer and whiskey, so that they might not be tempted to go outside. They hired thirty young girls in Cincinnati to pack fruit, and when they arrived put them at work canning corned beef, and put cots for them to sleep in a public hallway, through which the men passed. As the gangs came in day and night, under the escort of squads of police, they stowed away in unused workrooms and storerooms, and in the car sheds, crowded so closely together that the cots touched. In some places they would use the same room for eating and sleeping, and at night the men would put their cots upon the tables to keep away from the swarms of rats. But with all their best efforts the packers were demoralized. Ninety percent of the men had walked out, and they faced the task of completely remaking their labor force, and with the price of meat up thirty percent and the public clamoring for a settlement. They made an offer to submit the whole question at issue to arbitration, and at the end of ten days the unions accepted it, and the strike was called off. It was agreed that all the men were to be re-employed within forty-five days, and that there was to be no discrimination against union men. This was an anxious time for Jurgis. If the men were taken back without discrimination, he would lose his present place. He sought out the superintendent, who smiled grimly, and bade him wait and see. Durham's strike-breakers were few of them leaving. Whether or not the settlement was simply a trick of the packers to gain time, or whether they really expected to break the strike and cripple the unions by the plan cannot be said. But that night there went out from the office of Durham and Company a telegram to all the big packing centers, employ no union leaders, and in the morning when the twenty thousand men thronged into the yards with their dinner-pails and working clothes Jurgis stood near the door of the hog-trimming room, where he had worked before the strike, and saw a throng of eager men, with a score or two of policemen watching them, and he saw a superintendent come out and walk down the line and pick out man after man that pleased him, and one after another came, and there were some men up near the head of the line who were never picked, they being the union stewards and delegates, and the men Jurgis had heard making speeches at the meetings. Each time, of course, there were louder murmurings and angrier looks. Over where the cattle butchers were waiting Jurgis heard shouts and saw a crowd, and he hurried there, one big butcher who was president of the Packing Trades Council had been passed over five times, and the men were wild with rage. 
they had appointed a committee of three to go in and see the superintendent, and the committees had made three attempts, and each time the police had clubbed them back from the door. Then there were yells and hoots, continuing until at last the superintendent came to the door. "'We all go back, or none of us do,' cried a hundred voices. And the other shook his fist at them and shouted, "'You went out of here like cattle, and like cattle you'll come back.' Then suddenly the big butcher president leaped upon a pile of stones and yelled, "'It's off, boys. We'll all of us quit again.' and so the cattle butchers declared a new strike on the spot, and gathering their members from other plants where the same trick had been played, they marched down Packers Avenue, which was thronged with a dense mass of workers, cheering wildly. Men who had already got to work on the killing beds dropped their tools and joined them. Some galloped here and there on horseback, shouting the tidings, and within half an hour the whole of Packingtown was on strike again, and beside itself with fury. There was quite a different tone in Packingtown after this. The place was a seething cauldron of passion, and the scab who ventured into it fared badly. There were one or two of these incidents each day, the newspapers detailing them, and always blaming them upon the unions. Yet ten years before, when there were no unions in Packingtown, there was a strike and national troops had to be called, and there were pitched battles fought at night by the light of blazing freight trains. Packingtown was always a center of violence. In Whiskey Point, where there were a hundred saloons and one glue factory, there was always fighting, and always more of it in hot weather. Anyone who had taken the trouble to consult the station-house blotter would have found that there was less violence that summer than ever before and this while twenty thousand men were out of work, and with nothing to do all day but brood upon bitter wrongs. There was no one to picture the battle the Union leaders were fighting, to hold this huge army in rank, to keep it from straggling and pillaging, to cheer and encourage and guide a hundred thousand people of a dozen different tongues through six long weeks of hunger and disappointment and despair. Meantime the Packers had set themselves definitely to the task of making a new labor force. A thousand or two of strike-breakers were brought in every night, and distributed among the various plants. Some of them were experienced workers, butchers, salesmen, and managers from the Packers' branch stores, and a few union men who had deserted from other cities, but the vast majority were green negroes from the cotton districts of the far south and they were herded into the packing plants like sheep. There was a law forbidding the use of buildings as lodging-houses unless they were licensed for the purpose, and provided with proper windows, stairways, and fire-escapes. But here, in a paint-room reached only by an enclosed chute, a room without a single window and only one door, a hundred men were crowded upon mattresses on the floor. Up on the third story of the hog-house of Jones was a storeroom without a window, into which they crowded seven hundred men, sleeping upon the bare springs of cots, and with a second shift to use them by day. And when the clamor of the public led to an investigation into these conditions, and the mayor of the city was forced to order the enforcement of the law, 
the packers got a judge to issue an injunction forbidding him to do it. Just at this time the mayor was boasting that he had put an end to gambling and prize-fighting in the city, but here a swarm of professional gamblers had leagued themselves with the police to fleece the strike-breakers, and any night in the big open space in front of Brown's one might see brawny negroes stripped to the waist and pounding each other for money, while a howling throng of three or four thousand surged about, men and women, young white girls from the country rubbing elbows with big buck negroes with daggers in their boots, while rows of woolly heads peered down from every window of the surrounding factories. The ancestors of these black people had been savages in Africa, and since then they had been chattel slaves, or had been held down by a community ruled by the traditions of slavery. Now, for the first time, they were free, free to gratify every passion, free to wreck themselves. They were wanted to break a strike, and when it was broken they would be shipped away and their present masters would never see them again, and so whiskey and women were brought in by the carload and sold to them, and hell was let loose in the yards. Every night there were stabbings and shootings. It was said that the packers had blank permits which enabled them to ship dead bodies from the city without troubling the authorities. They lodged men and women on the same floor, and with the night there began a saturnalia of debauchery, scenes such as never before had been witnessed in America. And as the women were the dregs from the brothels of Chicago, and the men were for the most part ignorant country negroes, the nameless diseases of vice were soon rife, and this where food was being handled which was sent out to every corner of the civilized world. The Union stockyards were never a pleasant place, but now they were not only a collection of slaughterhouses, but also the camping place of an army of fifteen or twenty thousand human beasts. All day long the blazing midsummer sun beat down upon that square mile of abominations, upon tens of thousands of cattle crowded into pens, whose wooden floors stank and steamed contagion, upon bare, blistering, cinder-strewn railroad tracks, and huge blocks of dingy meat factories, whose labyrinthine passages defied a breath of fresh air to penetrate them and there were not merely rivers of hot blood, and carloads of moist flesh, and rendering vats and soap cauldrons, glue factories and fertilizer tanks that smelt like the craters of hell, there were also tons of garbage festering in the sun, and the greasy laundry of the workers hung out to dry, and dining-rooms littered with food and black with flies, and toilet-rooms that were open sewers and then at night, when this throng poured out into the streets to play, fighting, gambling, drinking and carousing, cursing and screaming, laughing and singing, playing banjos and dancing. They were worked in the yards all the seven days of the week, and they had their prize fights and crap games on Sunday nights as well. But then around the corner one might see a bonfire blazing, and an old gray-headed negress lean and witch-like her hair flying wild and her eyes blazing, yelling and chanting of the fires of perdition and the blood of the Lamb, 
while men and women lay down upon the ground and moaned and screamed in convulsions of terror and remorse. Such were the stockyards during the strike, while the unions watched in sullen despair, and the country clamored like a greedy child for its food, and the packers went grimly on their way. Each day they added new workers, and could be more stern with the old ones, could put them on piecework, and dismiss them if they did not keep up the pace. Jurgis was now one of their agents in this process, and he could feel the change day by day, like the slow starting up of a huge machine. He had gotten used to being a master of men, and because of the stifling heat and the stench, and the fact that he was a scab and knew it and despised himself. He was drinking and developing a villainous temper, and he stormed and cursed and raged at his men, and drove them until they were ready to drop with exhaustion. Then, one day late in August, a superintendent ran into the place and shouted to Jurgis and his gang to drop their work and come. They followed him outside to where, in the midst of a dense throng, they saw several two-horse trucks waiting, and three patrol-wagon loads of police. Jurgis and his men sprang upon one of the trucks, and the driver yelled to the crowd, and they went thundering away at a gallop. Some steers had just escaped from the yards, and the strikers had got hold of them, and there would be the chance of a scrap. They went out at the Ashland Avenue gate, and over in the direction of the dump. There was a yell as soon as they were sighted, men and women rushing out of houses and saloons as they galloped by. There were eight or ten policemen on the truck, however, and there was no disturbance until they came to a place where the street was blocked with a dense throng. Those on the flying truck yelled a warning and the crowd scattered pell-mell, disclosing one of the steers lying in its blood. There were a good many cattle butchers about just then, with nothing much to do, and hungry children at home, and so someone had knocked out the steer, and as a first-class man can kill and dress one in a couple of minutes, there were a good many steaks and roasts already missing. This called for punishment, of course, and the police proceeded to administer it by leaping from the truck and cracking at every head they saw. There were yells of rage and pain, and the terrified people fled into houses and stores, or scattered helder-skelder down the street. Jurgis and his gang joined in the sport, every man singling out his victim and striving to bring him to bay and punch him. If he fled into a house his pursuers would smash in the flimsy door and follow him up the stairs, hitting everyone who came within reach, and finally dragging his squealing quarry from under a bed or a pile of old clothes in a closet. Jurgis and two policemen chased some men into a barroom. One of them took shelter behind the bar, where a policeman cornered him and proceeded to whack him over the back and shoulders until he lay down and gave a chance at his head. The others leaped a fence in the rear, balking the second policeman, who was fat, and as he came back, furious and cursing, a big Polish woman, the owner of the saloon, rushed in screaming and received a poke in the stomach that doubled her up on the floor. Meantime Jurgis, who was of a practical temper, was helping himself at the bar, and the first policeman who had laid out his man joined him, handing out several more bottles and filling his pockets besides, 
and then, as he started to leave, cleaning off all the balance with a sweep of his club. The din of the glass crashing to the floor brought the fat Polish woman to her feet again, but another policeman came up behind her and put his knee into her back and his hands over her eyes, and then called to his companion, who went back and broke open the cash drawer and filled his pockets with the contents. Then the three went outside, and the man who was holding the woman gave her a shove and dashed out himself. The gang, having already got the carcass onto the truck, the party set out at a trot, followed by screams and curses, and a shower of bricks and stones from unseen enemies. These bricks and stones would figure in the accounts of the riot, which would be sent out to a few thousand newspapers within an hour or two, but the episode of the cash drawer would never be mentioned again, save only in the heartbreaking legends of Packingtown. It was late in the afternoon when they got back, and they dressed out the remainder of the steer and a couple of others that had been killed, and then knocked off for the day. Jurgis went downtown to supper with three friends who had been on the other trucks, and they exchanged reminiscences on the way. Afterward they drifted into a roulette parlor, and Jurgis, who was never lucky at gambling, dropped about fifteen dollars. To console himself he had to drink a good deal, and he went back to Packingtown about two in the morning, very much the worse for his excursion, and, it must be confessed, entirely deserving the calamity that was in store for him. As he was going to the place where he slept he met a painted-cheeked woman in a greasy kimono, and she put her arm about his waist to steady him. They turned into a dark room they were passing. But scarcely had they taken two steps before suddenly a door swung open and a man entered, carrying a lantern. "'Who's there?' he called sharply, and Jurgis started to mutter some reply but at the same instant the man raised his light, which flashed in his face, so that it was possible to recognize him. Jurgis stood stricken dumb, and his heart gave a leap like a mad thing. The man was Connor. Connor, the boss of the loading gang, the man who had seduced his wife, who had sent him to prison, and wrecked his home, ruined his life. He stood there, staring, with the light shining full upon him. Jurgis had often thought of Connor since coming back to Packingtown, but it had been as of something far off that no longer concerned him. Now, however, when he saw him, alive and in the flesh, the same thing happened to him that had happened before. A flood of rage boiled up in him, a blind frenzy seized him, and he flung himself at the man and smote him between the eyes, and then as he fell seized him by the throat and began to pound his head upon the stones. The woman began screaming and people came rushing in. The lantern had been upset and extinguished, and it was so dark they could not see a thing, but they could hear Jurgis panting and hear the thumping of his victim's skull, and they rushed there and tried to pull him off. Precisely as before, Jurgis came away with a piece of his enemy's flesh between his teeth, and, as before, he went on fighting with those who had interfered with him, until a policeman had come and beaten him into insensibility. And so Jurgis spent the balance of the night in the stockyard's station-house. This time, however, 
he had money in his pocket, and when he came to his senses he could get something to drink, and also a messenger to take word of his plight to Bush Harper. Harper did not appear, however, until after the prisoner, feeling very weak and ill, had been hailed into court and remanded at five hundred dollars bail to await the result of his victim's injuries. Jurgis was wild about this, because a different magistrate had chanced to be on the bench, and he had stated that he had never been arrested before, and also that he had been attacked first, and if only someone had been there to speak a good word for him, he could have been let off at once. But Harper explained that he had been downtown, and had not got the message. "'What's happened to you?' he asked. "'I've been doing a fellow up,' said Jurgis, "'and I've got to get five hundred dollars bail.' "'I can arrange that all right,' said the other, "'though it may cost you a few dollars, of course. "'But what was the trouble?' "'It was a man that did me a mean trick once,' answered Jurgis. "'Who is he?' "'He's a foreman in Browns, or used to be. "'His name's Connor.' "'And the other gave a start. "'Connor!' he cried. "'Not Phil Connor!' "'Yes,' said Jurgis. "'That's the fellow. Why?' "'Good God!' exclaimed the other. "'Then you're in for it, old man. I can't help you.' "'Not help me? Why not?' "'Why, he's one of Scully's biggest men. He's a member of the War Whoop League, and they talked of sending him to the legislature. Phil Connor! Great heavens!' Jurgis sat dumb with dismay. "'Why, he can send you to Joliet if he wants to,' declared the other. "'Can't I have Scully get me off before he finds out about it?' asked Jurgis at length. "'But Scully's out of town,' the other answered. "'I don't even know where he is. He's run away to dodge the strike.' That was a pretty mess indeed. Poor Jurgis sat half-dazed. His pull had run up against a bigger pull, and he was down and out. "'But what am I going to do?' he asked weakly. "'How should I know?' said the other. "'I shouldn't even dare to get bail for you. Why, I might ruin myself for life!' Again there was silence. "'Can't you do it for me?' Jurgis asked, and pretend that you didn't know who'd I'd hit. "'But what good would that do you when you came to stand trial?' asked Harper. Then he sat buried in thought for a minute or two. "'There's nothing.' "'Unless it's this,' he said. "'I could have your bail reduced, and then if you had the money you could pay it and skip.' "'How much will it be?' Jurgis asked, after he had had this explained more in detail. "'I don't know,' said the other. "'How much do you own?' "'I've got about three hundred dollars,' was the answer. "'Well,' was Harper's reply, "'I'm not sure.' but I'll try and get you off for that. I'll take the risk for friendship's sake, for I'd hate to see you sent to state's prison for a year or two. And so finally Jurgis ripped out his bank book, which was sewed up in his trousers, and signed an order which Bush Harper wrote for all the money to be paid out. Then the latter went and got it, and hurried to the court, and explained to the magistrate that Jurgis was a decent fellow and a friend of Scully's, who had been attacked by a strike-breaker. So the bail was reduced to three hundred dollars, and Harper went on it himself. He did not tell this to Jurgis, however, nor did he tell him that when the time for trial came it would be an easy matter for him to avoid the forfeiting of the bail and pocket the three hundred dollars as his reward for the risk of offending Mike Scully. 
All that he told Jurgis was that he was now free, and that the best thing he could do was to clear out as quickly as possible. And so Jurgis, overwhelmed with gratitude and relief, took the dollar and fourteen cents that was left him out of all his bank account and put it with the two dollars and a quarter that was left from last night's celebration and boarded a streetcar and got off at the other end of Chicago. End of chapter 26 Recording by Tom Weiss Chapter 27 of The Jungle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss The Jungle by Upton Sinclair Chapter 27 Poor Jurgis was now an outcast and a tramp once more. He was crippled. He was as literally crippled as any wild animal which has lost its claws or been torn out of its shell. He had been shorn, at one cut, of all those mysterious weapons whereby he had been able to make a living easily and to escape the consequences of his actions. He could no longer command the job when he wanted it. He could no longer steal with impunity. He must take his chances with the common herd. Nay, worse, he dared not mingle with the herd. He must hide himself, for he was one marked out for destruction. His old companions would betray him for the sake of the influence they would gain thereby, and he would be made to suffer, not merely for the offense he had committed, but for others which would be laid at his door, just as had been done for some poor devil on the occasion of that assault upon the country customer by him and Duane. And also he labored under another handicap now, he had acquired new standards of living, which were not easily to be altered. When he had been out of work before he had been content if he could sleep in a doorway or under a truck out of the rain, and if he could get fifteen cents a day for saloon lunches, but now he desired all sorts of other things, and suffered because he had to do without them. He must have a drink now and then, a drink for its own sake and apart from the food that came with it. The craving for it was strong enough to master every other consideration. He would have it, though it were his last nickel, and he had to starve the balance of the day in consequence. Jurgis became once more a besieger of factory gates, but never since he had been to Chicago had he stood less chance of getting a job than just then. For one thing, there was the economic crisis, the million or two of men who had been out of work in the spring and summer, and were not yet all back by any means. And then there was the strike, with seventy thousand men and women all over the country idle for a couple of months, twenty thousand in Chicago, and many of them now seeking work throughout the city. It did not remedy matters that a few days later the strike was given up and about half the strikers went back to work. For every one taken on there was a scab who gave up and fled. The ten or fifteen thousand green negroes, foreigners, and criminals were now being turned loose to shift for themselves. Everywhere Jurgis went 
he kept meeting them, and he was in an agony of fear lest some of them should know that he was wanted. He would have left Chicago, only by the time he had realized his danger he was almost penniless, and it would be better to go to jail than to be caught out in the country in the winter time. At the end of about ten days Jurgis had only a few pennies left, and he had not yet found a job, not even a day's work at anything, not a chance to carry a satchel. Once again, as when he had come out of the hospital, he was bound hand and foot, and facing the grisly phantom of starvation. Raw, naked terror possessed him, a maddening passion that would never leave him, and that wore him down more quickly than the actual want of food. He was going to die of hunger. The fiend reached out its scaly arms for him, it touched him, its breath came into his face, and he would cry out for the awfulness of it. He would wake up in the night, shuddering and bathed in perspiration, and start up and flee. He would walk, begging for work, until he was exhausted. He could not remain still. He would wander on, gaunt and haggard, gazing about him with restless eyes. Everywhere he went, from one end of the vast city to the other, there were hundreds of others like him. Everywhere was the sight of plenty and the merciless hand of authority waving them away. There is one kind of prison where the man is behind bars, and everything that he desires is outside. And there is another kind where the things are behind the bars, and the man is outside. When he was down to his last quarter, Jurgis learned that before the bake-shops closed at night they sold out what was left at half-price, and after that he would go and get two loaves of stale bread for a nickel and break them up and stuff his pockets with them, munching a bit from time to time. He would not spend a penny save for this, and after two or three days more he even became sparing of the bread and would stop and peer into the ash-barrels as he walked along the streets, and now and then rake out a bit of something, shake it free from dust, and count himself just so many minutes further from the end. So for several days he had been going about, ravenous all the time, and growing weaker and weaker, and then one morning he had a hideous experience that almost broke his heart. He was passing down a street lined with warehouses, and a boss offered him a job, and then, after he had started to work, turned him off because he was not strong enough. And he stood by and saw another man put into his place, and then picked up his coat and walked off, doing all that he could to keep from breaking down and crying like a baby. He was lost. He was doomed there was no hope for him. But then, with a sudden rush, his fear gave place to rage. He fell to cursing. He would come back there after dark, and he would show that scoundrel whether he was good for anything or not. He was still muttering this when suddenly, at the corner, he came upon a green grocery with a tray full of cabbages in front of it. Jurgis, after one swift glance about him, stooped and seized the biggest of them and darted round the corner with it. There was a hue and cry, 
and a score of men and boys started in chase of him, but he came to an alley, and then to another branching off from it, and leading him into another street, where he fell into a walk and slipped his cabbage under his coat and went off unsuspected in the crowd. When he had gotten a safe distance away, he sat down and devoured half the cabbage raw, stowing the balance away in his pockets, till the next day. Just about this time one of the Chicago newspapers, which made much of the common people, opened a free soup kitchen for the benefit of the unemployed. Some people said that they did this for the sake of the advertising it gave them, and some others said that their motive was a fear lest all their readers should be starved off. But whatever the reason, the soup was thick and hot, and there was a bowl for every man all night long. When Jurgis heard of this from a fellow hobo he vowed that he would have half a dozen bowls before morning but as it proved he was lucky to get one, for there was a line of men two blocks long before the stand, and there was just as long a line when the place was finally closed up. This depot was within the danger line for Jurgis, in the levee district, where he was known. But he went there all the same, for he was desperate and beginning to think of even the Bridewell as a place of refuge. So far the weather had been fair, and he had slept out every night in a vacant lot, but now there fell suddenly a shadow of the advancing winter, a chill wind from the north, and a driving storm of rain. That day Jurgis bought two drinks for the sake of the shelter, and at night he spent his last two pennies in a stale beer dive. This was a place kept by a negro, who went out and drew off the old dregs of beer that lay in barrels set outside of the saloons, and after he had doctored it with chemicals to make it fizz, he sold it for two cents a can, the purchase of a can including the privilege of sleeping the night through upon the floor with a mass of degraded outcasts, men and women. All these horrors afflicted Jurgis all the more cruelly, because he was always contrasting them with the opportunities he had lost. For instance, just now it was election time again. Within five or six weeks the voters of the country would select a president, and he heard the wretches with whom he associated discussing it, and saw the streets of the city decorated with placards and banners, and what words could describe the pangs of grief and despair that shot through him? For instance, there was a night during this cold spell. He had begged all day for his very life, and found not a soul to heed him, until toward evening he saw an old lady getting off a streetcar and helped her down with her umbrellas and bundles and then told her his hard luck story. And after answering all her suspicious questions satisfactorily, was taken to a restaurant and saw a quarter paid down for a meal. And so he had soup and bread and boiled beef and potatoes and beans and pie and coffee, and came out with his skin stuffed tight as a football. And then, through the rain and the darkness, far down the street, he saw red lights flaring and heard the thumping of a bass drum, and his heart gave a leap and he made for the place on the run, knowing without the asking that it meant a political meeting. The campaign had so far been characterized by what the newspapers termed apathy. 
For some reason the people refused to get excited over the struggle, and it was almost impossible to get them to come to meetings or to make any noise when they did come. Those which had been held in Chicago so far had proved most dismal failures, and tonight, the speaker being no less a personage than a candidate for the vice-presidency of the nation, the political managers had been trembling with anxiety. But a merciful providence had sent this storm of cold rain, and now all it was necessary to do was to set off a few fireworks and thump a while on a drum, and all the homeless wretches from a mile around would pour in and fill the hall. And then on the morrow the newspapers would have a chance to report the tremendous ovation, and to add that it had been no silk-stocking audience either, proving clearly that the high-tariff sentiments of the distinguished candidate were pleasing to the wage-earners of the nation. So Jurgis found himself in a large hall, elaborately decorated with flags and bunting, and after the chairman had made his little speech, and the orator of the evening rose up, amid an uproar from the band, only fancy the emotions of Jurgis upon making the discovery that the personage was none other than the famous and eloquent Senator Spareshanks, who had addressed the Doyle Republican Association at the stockyards, and helped to elect Mike Scully's ten-pin setter to the Chicago Board of Aldermen. In truth, the sight of the senator almost brought tears into Jurgis' eyes. What agony it was to him to look back upon those golden hours, when he too had a place beneath the shadow of the plum-tree, when he too had been of the elect through whom the country is governed, when he had had a bung in the campaign barrel for his own. And this was another election in which the Republicans had all the money and but for that one hideous accident he might have had a share of it, instead of being where he was. The eloquent senator was explaining the system of protection, an ingenious device whereby the working man permitted the manufacturer to charge him higher prices, in order that he might perceive higher wages, thus taking his money out of his pocket with one hand and putting a part of it back with the other. To the senator this unique arrangement had somehow become identified with the higher verities of the universe. It was because of it that Columbia was the gem of the ocean, and all her future triumphs, her power and her good repute among the nations, depended upon the zeal and fidelity with which each citizen held up the hands of those who were toiling to maintain it. The name of this heroic company was the Grand Old Party, and here the band began to play, and Jurgis sat up with a violent start. Singular as it may seem, Jurgis was making a desperate effort to understand what the senator was saying, to comprehend the extent of American prosperity, the enormous expansion of American commerce, and the Republic's future in the Pacific and in South America and wherever else the oppressed were groaning. The reason for it was that he wanted to keep awake. He knew that if he allowed himself to fall asleep he would begin to snore loudly, and so he must listen, he must be interested. But he had eaten such a big dinner, and he was so exhausted, 
and the hall was so warm, and his seat was so comfortable. The senator's gaunt form began to grow dim and hazy, to tower before him and dance about, with figures of exports and imports. Once his neighbor gave him a savage poke in the ribs, and he sat up with a start and tried to look innocent. But then he was at it again, and men began to stare at him with annoyance and to call out in vexation. Finally one of them called a policeman, who came and grabbed Jurgis by the collar and jerked him to his feet, bewildered and terrified. Some of the audience turned to see the commotion, and Senator Spareshanks faltered in his speech, but a voice shouted cheerily, "'We're just firing a bum. Go ahead, old sport!' And so the crowd roared, and the senator smiled genially, and went on. And in a few seconds poor Jurgis found himself landed out in the rain with a kick and a string of curses. He got into the shelter of a doorway and took stock of himself. He was not hurt, and he was not arrested, more than he had any right to expect. He swore at himself and his luck for a while, and then turned his thoughts to practical manners. He had no money and no place to sleep. He must begin begging again. He went out, hunching his shoulders together and shivering at the touch of the icy rain. Coming down the street toward him was a lady, well-dressed and protected by an umbrella, and he turned and walked beside her. "'Please, ma'am,' he began, "'could you lend me the price of a night's lodging? I'm a poor working man.' Then suddenly he stopped short. By the light of a street lamp he had caught sight of the lady's face. He knew her. It was Elena Yesetite, who had been the belle of his wedding feast. Elena Yesetite, who had looked so beautiful and danced with such a queenly air, with Yusas Rashus, the teamster. Jurgis had only seen her once or twice afterward, for Yusas had thrown her over for another girl, and Elena had gone away from Packingtown, no one knew where. And now he met her here. She was as much surprised as he was. Jurgis Rudkus, she gasped, and what in the world is the matter with you? I... I've had hard luck, he stammered. I'm out of work, and I've no home and no money. And you, Elena, are you married? No, she answered, I'm not married, but I've got a good place. They stood staring at each other for a few moments longer, and finally Elena spoke again. Jurgis, she said, I'd help you if I could, upon my word I would, but it happens that I've come out without my purse and I honestly haven't a penny with me. I can do something far better for you, though. I can tell you how to get help. I can tell you where Maria is. Jurgis gave a start. Maria? he exclaimed. Yes, said Elena, and she'll help you. She's got a place, and she's doing well. She'll be glad to see you." It was not much more than a year since Jurgis had left Packingtown, feeling like one escaped from jail, and it had been from Maria and Elzbieta that he was escaping. But now, at the mere mention of them, his whole being cried out with joy. He wanted to see them. He wanted to go home. They would help him. They would be kind to him. In a flash, 
He had thought over the situation. He had a good excuse for running away, his grief at the death of his son. And also he had a good excuse for not returning, the fact that they had left Packingtown. All right, he said. I'll go. So she gave him a number on Clark Street, adding, There's no need to give you my address, because Maria knows it. And Jurgis set out without further ado. He found a large brownstone house of aristocratic appearance, and rang the basement bell. A young colored girl came to the door, opening it about an inch, and gazing at him suspiciously. "'What do you want?' she demanded. "'Does Maria Berchinska live here?' he inquired. "'I don't know,' said the girl. "'What you want with her?' "'I want to see her,' said he. "'She's a relative of mine.' The girl hesitated a moment. Then she opened the door and said, "'Come in.' Jurgis came and stood in the hall, and she continued, "'I'll go see. What's your name?' "'Tell her it's Jurgis,' he answered, and the girl went upstairs. She came back at the end of a minute or two and replied, "'There ain't no sich person here.' Jurgis' heart went down into his boots. "'I was told this was where she lived,' he cried. But the girl only shook her head. "'De lady says they ain't no sich person here,' she said. And he stood for a moment, hesitating, helpless with dismay. Then he turned to go to the door. At the same instant, however, there came a knock upon it, and the girl went to open it. Jurgis heard the shuffling of feet, and then heard her give a cry, and the next moment she sprang back and passed him, her eyes shining white with terror, and bounded up the stairway, screaming at the top of her lungs, "'Police! Police! We're pinched!' Jurgis stood for a second, bewildered. Then, seeing blue-coated forms rushing upon him, he sprang after the negress. Her cries had been the signal for a wild uproar above. The house was full of people, and as he entered the hallway he saw them rushing hither and thither and crying and screaming with alarm. There were men and women, the latter clad for the most part in wrappers, the former in all stages of dishabille. At one side Jurgis caught a glance of a big apartment with plush-covered chairs and tables covered with trays and glasses. There were playing cards scattered all over the floor. One of the tables had been upset, and bottles of wine were rolling about, their contents running out upon the carpet. There was a young girl who had fainted and two men who were supporting her, and there were a dozen others crowding toward the front door. Suddenly, however, there came a series of resounding blows upon it, causing the crowd to give back. At the same instant a stout woman, with painted cheeks and diamonds in her ears, came running down the stairs, panting breathlessly. To the rear! Quick! She led the way to a back staircase, Jurgis following. In the kitchen she pressed a spring, and a cupboard gave way and opened, disclosing a dark passage. Go in, she cried to the crowd which now amounted to twenty or thirty, and they began to pass through. Scarcely had the last one disappeared, however, before there were cries from in front, and then the panic-stricken throng poured out again, exclaiming, "'They're there, too! We're trapped!' "'Upstairs!' cried the woman, and there was another rush of the mob, women and men cursing and screaming and fighting to be first. One flight, two, three, 
and then there was a ladder to the roof with a crowd packed at the foot of it and one man at the top straining and struggling to lift the trap-door. It was not to be stirred, however, and when the woman shouted up to unhook it he answered, "'It's already unhooked. There's somebody sitting on it.' And a moment later came a voice from downstairs. "'You might as well quit, you people. We mean business this time.' So the crowd subsided, and a few moments later several policemen came up, staring here and there, and leering at their victims. Of the latter the men were for the most part frightened and sheepish-looking. The women took it as a joke, as if they were used to it, though if they had been pale one could not have told for the paint on their cheeks. One black-eyed young girl perched herself upon the top of the balustrade and began to kick with her slippered foot at the helmets of the policemen, until one of them caught her by the ankle and pulled her down. On the floor below four or five other girls sat upon trunks in the hall, making fun of the procession which filed by them. They were noisy and hilarious, and had evidently been drinking. One of them, who wore a bright red kimono, shouted and screamed in a voice that drowned out all the other sounds in the hall, and Jurgis took a glance at her and then gave a start and a cry. Maria! She heard him and glanced around. Then she shrank back and half sprang to her feet in amazement. Jurgis! she gasped. For a second or two they stood staring at each other. How did you come to be here? Maria exclaimed. I came to see you, he answered. When? Just now. But how did you know? Who told you I was here? Elena Yesetite. I met her on the street. Again there was a silence while they gazed at each other. The rest of the crowd was watching them, and so Maria got up and came closer to him. "'And you?' Jurgis asked. "'You live here?' "'Yes,' said Maria. "'I live here.' Then suddenly came a hail from below. "'Get your clothes on now, girls, and come along. You'd best begin, or you'll be sorry. It's raining outside.' Burr shivered someone, and the women got up and entered the various doors which lined the hallway. "'Come,' said Maria and took Jurgis into her room, which was a tiny place about eight by six, with a cot and a chair and a dressing-stand and some dresses hanging behind the door. There were clothes scattered about on the floor and hopeless confusion everywhere, boxes of rouge and bottles of perfume mixed with hats and soiled dishes on the dresser and a pair of slippers and a clock and a whiskey-bottle on a chair. Maria had nothing on but a kimono and a pair of stockings, yet she proceeded to dress before Jurgis and without even taking the trouble to close the door. He had by this time divined what sort of place he was in, and he had seen a great deal of the world since he had left home, and was not easy to shock, and yet it gave him a painful start that Maria should do this. They had always been decent people at home, and it seemed to him that the memory of old times ought to have ruled her. But then he laughed at himself for a fool. What was he to be pretending to decency? "'How long have you been living here?' he asked. "'Nearly a year,' she answered. "'Why did you come?' "'I had to live,' she said, "'and I couldn't see the children starve.' He paused for a moment, watching her. "'You were out of work?' he asked finally. 
I got sick, she replied, and after that I had no money. And then Stanislovas died. Stanislovas dead? Yes, said Maria. I forgot. You didn't know about that. How did he die? Rats killed him, she answered. Jurgis gave a gasp. Rats killed him? Yes, said the other. She was bending over, lacing her shoes as she spoke. He was working in an oil factory. At least he was hired by the men to get their beer. He used to carry cans on a long pole, and he'd drink a little out of each can. And one day he drank too much and fell asleep in a corner and got locked up in the place all night. When they found him the rats had killed him and eaten him nearly all up. Jurgis sat frozen with horror. Maria went on, lacing up her shoes. There was a long silence. Suddenly a big policeman came to the door. "'Hurry up there,' he said. "'As quick as I can,' said Maria, and she stood up and began putting on her corsets with feverish haste. "'Are the rest of the people alive?' asked Jurgis finally. "'Yes,' she said. "'Where are they?' "'They live not far from here. They're all right now.' "'They are working?' he inquired. Elzbieta is, said Maria, when she can. I take care of them most of the time. I'm making plenty of money now. Jurgis was silent for a moment. Do they know you live here? How you live? he asked. Elzbieta knows, answered Maria. I couldn't lie to her. And maybe the children have found out by this time. It's nothing to be ashamed of. We can't help it. And Tomosius, he asked. Does he know? Maria shrugged her shoulders. "'How do I know?' she said. "'I haven't seen him for over a year. He got blood poisoning and lost one finger, and couldn't play the violin any more. And then he went away.' Maria was standing in front of the glass, fastening her dress. Jurgis sat staring at her. He could hardly believe that she was the same woman he had known in the old days. She was so quiet, so hard. It struck fear to his heart to watch her. Then suddenly she gave a glance at him. "'You look as if you had been having a rough time of it yourself,' she said. "'I have,' he answered. "'I haven't a cent in my pockets and nothing to do.' "'Where have you been?' "'All over. I've been hoboing it. Then I went back to the yards just before the strike.' He paused for a moment, hesitating. "'I asked for you,' he added. I found you had gone away. No one knew where. Perhaps you think I did you a dirty trick, running away as I did, Maria. No, she answered. I don't blame you. We never have, any of us. You did your best. The job was too much for us. She paused for a moment, then added, We were too ignorant. That was the trouble. We didn't stand any chance. If I'd known what I know now, we'd have won out. "'You'd have come here?' said Jurgis. "'Yes,' she answered. "'But that's not what I meant. I meant you, how differently you would have behaved, about Ona.' Jurgis was silent. He had never thought of that aspect of it. "'When people are starving,' the other continued, "'and they have anything with a price, they ought to sell it,' I say. "'I guess you realize it now, when it's too late.' Ona could have taken care of us all in the beginning. Maria spoke without emotion as one who had come to regard things 
from the business point of view. "'I—yes, I guess so,' Jurgis answered hesitatingly. He did not add that he had paid three hundred dollars and a foreman's job for the satisfaction of knocking down Phil Connor a second time. The policeman came to the door again just then. "'Come on now,' he said, lively. "'All right,' said Maria, reaching for her hat, which was big enough to be a drum-major's, and full of ostrich feathers. She went out into the hall, and Jurgis followed, the policeman remaining to look under the bed and behind the door. "'What's going to come of this?' Jurgis asked, as they started down the steps. "'The raid, you mean? Oh, nothing. It happens to us every now and then.' the madam's having some sort of time with the police. I don't know what it is, but maybe they'll come to terms before morning. Anyhow, they won't do anything to you. They always let the men off. Maybe so, he responded. But not me. I'm afraid I'm in for it. How do you mean? I'm wanted by the police, he said, lowering his voice, though, of course, their conversation was in Lithuanian. They'll send me up for a year or two, I'm afraid. Hell, said Maria, that's too bad. I'll see if I can't get you off. Downstairs, where the greater part of the prisoners were now massed, she sought out the stout personage with the diamond earrings, and had a few whispered words with her. The latter then approached the police sergeant who was in charge of the raid. Billy, she said, pointing to Jurgis, there's a fellow who came in to see his sister. He's just got in the door when you knocked. You aren't taking hoboes, are you? The sergeant laughed as he looked at Jurgis. Sorry, he said, but the orders are everyone but the servants. So Jurgis slunk in among the rest of the men, who kept dodging behind each other like sheep that have smelled a wolf. There were old men and young men, college boys and graybeards old enough to be their grandfathers, some of them wore evening dresses. There was no one among them save Jurgis who showed any signs of poverty. When the round-up was completed the doors were opened and the party marched out. Three patrol wagons were drawn up at the curb, and the whole neighborhood had turned out to see the sport. There was much chafing and a universal craning of necks. The women stared about them with defiant eyes, or laughed and joked while the men kept their heads bowed and their hats pulled over their faces. They were crowded into the patrol wagons as if into streetcars, and then off they went amid a din of cheers. At the station-house Jurgis gave a Polish name, and was put into a cell with half a dozen others, and while these sat and talked in whispers he lay down in a corner and gave himself up his thoughts. Jurgis had looked into the deepest reaches of the social pit, and grown used to the sights in them. Yet when he had thought of all humanity as vile and hideous, he had somehow always accepted his own family that he had loved, and now this sudden horrible discovery. Maria, a whore, and Elzbieta and the children living off her shame. Jurgis might argue with himself all he chose, that he had done worse, and was a fool for caring, but still he could not get over the shock of that sudden unveiling, he could not help being sunk in grief because of it. The depths of him were troubled and shaken, memories were stirred in him that had been sleeping so long he had counted them dead. 
memories of the old life, his old hopes and his old yearnings, his old dreams of decency and independence. He saw Ona again, he heard her gentle voice pleading with him. He saw little Antanas, whom he had meant to make a man. He saw his trembling old father, who had blessed them all with his wonderful love. He lived again through that day of horror when he discovered Ona's shame. God, how he had suffered! What a madman he had been! How dreadful it had all seemed to him! And now today he had sat and listened, and half agreed when Maria told him he had been a fool. Yes, told him that he ought to have sold his wife's honor and lived by it. And then there was Stanislavus and his awful fate, that brief story which Maria had narrated so calmly and with such dull indifference. The poor little fellow, with his frostbitten fingers and his terror of the snow, his wailing voice rang in Jurgis's ears as he lay there in the darkness until the sweat started on his forehead. Now and then he would quiver with a sudden spasm of horror at the picture of little Stanislavus shut up in the deserted building and fighting for his life with the rats. All these emotions had become strangers to the soul of Jurgis. It was so long since they had troubled him that he had ceased to think they might ever trouble him again. Helpless, trapped as he was, what good did they do him? Why should he ever have allowed them to torment him? It had been the task of his recent life to fight them down, to crush them out of him. Never in his life would he have suffered from them again, save that they had caught him unawares and overwhelmed him before he could protect himself. He heard the old voices of his soul, and he saw its old ghosts beckoning to him, stretching out their arms to him. But they were far off and shadowy, and the gulf between them was black and bottomless. They would fade away into the mists of the past once more. Their voices would die, and never again would he hear them. And so the last faint spark of manhood in his soul would flicker out. End of chapter 27 Recording by Tom Weiss